Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to our mini-series all about the Ready's future of HR. It's me, Rodney Evans, and my co-host, Sam Sperlin. What's up, Sam? It's also me, Sam Sperlin. What up? How's it going? Today, we are coming in hot with episode seven, where we talk about the new role of market designer. You guys are going to like this, I promise. Market designer is our jam. And what that means for level four of our maturity model, aka the talent marketplace. But before we dig into all of that nerdery, should we do a check-in, Sam? We'll do a little bit of different nerdery, the check-in nerdery. And the check-in question for today what is an award or trophy that you have won at some point in your life, maybe as a child, that you were probably you were prouder of than you probably should have been? Ooh. I mean, you can leave off that last part. I'm not here to judge whether or not you should have been proud of the trophy or award or commendation that you received as a child. I mean, shouldn't children be encouraged to be proud of all of their accomplishments, Sam? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I didn't win a lot of awards. I find that so hard to believe. Why? I I would give you an award right now if I could. For what? Best podcast co-host. That's amazing. Thank you very much. You know why I think I didn't win a lot of awards is because people were jealous. No, I'm just kidding. It's because (laughs) the thing that I did was the cello. Mm. And it's Mm. not a very awardy thing. Like you compete for a chair. And then once you get a chair, you compete for a better chair. And then that's it. There's no award afterward. That is the award. It's like you get a scholarship. First first chair, first chair is the award. That's the award. So I didn't do things where there were like trophies. I did things where they were like, you can come or you have to go home. And the (laughs) award is you get to stay. (laughs) So like actual high stakes results uh, stuff, not bullshit plastic trophies. Yeah, it's more like, can you go to college here? We'll find out. (laughs) Stay tuned. (laughs) Stay tuned to know about your future. I guess related, though, at the end of high school, our senior year, I did win the, like, all-music department award, which, like, I had been in chorus, and I had been the drum major of the marching band, and I had played the cello. And so it was sort of sweet that I got the big thing because I had been so known as like the classical Mm. musician person. I think people were like, yeah, duh, all you do is music stuff. But I was probably more psyched about that than I should have been. Top music person. Top music person. Maybe it's just because I didn't get awards for anything. So then when someone handed me a plastic trophy, I was like, it's about time. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, I mean, I think we should figure out ways to get you some more trophies. But uh, Thanks, Sam. That would be great. What about you? The one that came to mind for me was senior year of high school. 
We did superlatives like, you know, Ooh. most likely to be successful or whatever. And I remember I won from all of my classmates most reliable, which is like so it's on like, brand. It's like a very old man award. Like, yeah, he'll be there for you. And I remember, <laughs> but I remember being like strangely proud of that, you know. That's the award for <laughs> being there. <laughs> yeah, just be, he'll, he'll be there. Sam, he'll be there. Also, before we hit record on this, Sam and I were talking about age and how he's always been an old man and did the quick math that when we met each other, he was 29 and I was 38 and I thought we were the same age. (laughs) (laughs) Which I just feel like, you know, started in high school. You started started way back with old man reliability energy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, just young dad doing my best. I'm not actually a dad. I have no children. But, you know, that's the vibe that I'm putting across. I think the Sam Sperlin superlative should be best mustache. Mm. I am completely on board with you uh, with that one. The mustache was a pandemic discovery, actually. And when I've got a fresh mustache adorning my face, I got a whole different energy. (laughs) Big mustache energy. All right. Well, let's take that into this episode. We want mustache, Sam, not old, reliable. Into this episode. Let's do it. Market designers, level four, the marketplace. What are we even doing here today, Rodney? We are going to talk about this role. So let me paint you a word picture. You go into an organization. Maybe it's a big company. It probably is. And there are these people who work in some small team that's called like org effectiveness or org design or HR transformation or HR strategy. And they're usually your favorite people that you meet in HR, right? They're the people who listen to this podcast and read all the things and care about the future of work. And you meet them and you're like, sweet, I found my people. And then you find out what they do for a living in that organization. And Sam, what kind of job do those people normally do? It seems challenging and like the name of the role has very little to actually do with what they're spending their day to day on. I generally see those folks as having to spend a lot of time going around and managing stakeholders and talking about what we could potentially do with transformation Mm. and org effectiveness and very little actually having any sort of mandate or ability or autonomy to make any of that effectiveness or transformation actually happen. Agreed. I will ungenerously say, even though these are generally my people in orgs, sticks and bricks and birthday parties. And by that, I mean redrawing org charts at the behest of the business, who's like, let me get these org effectiveness people in to do a spans and layers exercise and redraw my org chart, or come facilitate my offsite. Yeah, exactly. By by which I mean birthday parties, which like, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those two things. Like, structure work is important. Facilitation work is very important. But what neither of those things does is create org effectiveness or real change. Mm -hmm. And these people are usually the people who are considered and, you know, self-identify as being the change agents in the organization and then have roles that very much are not designed to make systemic change. So the big focus of this market designer role is to take these brilliant humans 
who think like us and get them into the job they're meant to be in where they get to really shake some shit up. Right. Get them in an environment, get them in a place where they can actually do stuff. Because what I was going to say is they sometimes, especially on the, uh, what do you call it? Sticks and, and bricks? Sticks and bricks. Like an org chart. And you bricks. Know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I got you. They sometimes are creating quite the org change with the uh, sticks and bricks exercise in a not so great way. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. So let's start with a tangent just right off the bat. If you only do tangents, then there aren't tangents. <laughs> just putting it out there. It's tangents all the way down. That's the new tagline of this show. <laughs> yeah. So the TLDR of market designers is, this is a lot of what we do in companies. The HR business coach holds a lot of the things that we hold inside of teams. The market designer is a lot of what we do as consultants with companies. So I'm just going to say that out loud right now because that's going to come up again. And then I'm going to ask you when you are effectively playing the market designer role and your client says, let's start with sticks and bricks. What do you say and why? I say in a very diplomatic way, I don't generally rhyme the way that I am right now. I, I respond by trying to better understand, well, what is causing you to feel like this is the thing that we have to do? They are feeling mm. some sort of pain. There are some sort of symptoms that they are experiencing, and they are jumping to the most visible, kind of highest impact solution that they are aware of, and that is changing the, the organization. And if you haven't really experienced any other way of doing it, then I don't blame them for kind of going there first. So my, and I think our role initially in, in these organizations is to understand what are the symptoms and now let's give you some different lenses to actually look at your organization to find other potentially less disruptive levers to pull first. And sometimes we do eventually get back to structure because structure is a huge deal and sometimes some things can only be affected by structure, but very rarely is it the first lever we want to pull because it can be so incredibly disruptive and it almost always is. Why is it so disruptive in your opinion? So generally, if we're going to start talking about structure and we have not been in an organization for very long, then we have not really established this idea of roles and souls being separated. So mm -hmm. if they are not separated, now you are changing structure with people whose soul, their one thing they do is connected to that job title, which is now getting moved around an org chart or disappearing entirely. And that's existential for people. And when you are an existential risk for whether or not this person has a job tomorrow, you're not bringing the most creative and kind of expansive thinking to the exercise. You are in this fearful, rightfully kind of fearful place. Yeah. I also think that just the sheer amount of work that it takes to do a big reorg, it's like any traditional overwrought planning process where it like feels like you're really doing something by changing the reporting lines or like yeah. changing what we call certain jobs or some or getting rid of a layer of management. And the impact of that is like, a lot of chaos and a lot of relearning. And now we've all got new managers. And we've got new reporting lines. I'm like, I don't know this guy and I don't like that guy. And where did my friends go Absolutely. and all of this stuff. And then like questionable impact. It's usually not like day one or month six. We're like, well, 
good thing we did that reorg because now we are well, humming. And the proof is in the fact that we only the next reorg is just over just the horizon. Just right around the corner. <laughs> it's just, yeah. I mean, it's taking a reorg is taking a snow globe and shaking it the hell up. And then yeah. sitting there and waiting for it to get back to a sense of normalcy. And once, for most organizations, once it finally gets back to that normalcy and we see where the snow has landed, we're like, I don't like what's in there. Let's shake it up again. And yeah. you're, just, you're just living in a perpetual blizzard. It's like, oh, we did it wrong. Let's start over. And it's yeah. like, no, 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 That's not the answer. So this market designer role will help us to see that. And also, since we started with structure randomly, Part of the market designer's role is to create the structures and practices and processes and roles and, frankly, the environment needed to have a real talent marketplace rather than a very traditionally structured org. So we have to have these kind of people to help us organize around missions or to help us organize in platform teams. We have to have these sort of internal consultants so that they can keep evolving the organization in a way that is continual and iterative and using experimentation to get us out of this sort of snow globe shaking loop. Can you just take like maybe one thin slice of that or just one example? Like what does that actually look like in the day-to-day for these market designers? Like what types of activity would we see them doing if we were just watching from afar? So there are a lot of pieces to this. And if you think in the most sort of traditional and known way that I'll just say because a lot of people have a mental model around it, if you look at a traditional consulting firm, there tend to be shared services or COEs that are very oriented to resource management. So they're the ones who are figuring out, okay, there's a client project coming in. How are we getting it staffed? How are we getting the right people? How are we monitoring capacity and utilization? How are we matching the skills to the project, et cetera? In this talent marketplace, level four of the maturity model, that is part of the job. Part of the job is that as missions are coming in, we don't expect the HR business coach to be figuring out across the organization what is going to be needed. Ideally, they're helping to do the chartering in the mission-based team and do the early role crafting, but we need someone who is figuring out, okay, what is the tooling to know or to visualize who sits where and has what skills so that we can assemble them around the mission. So that's one very thin slice. And then a very macro slice, and then there's just a ton of stuff in between, is as we move beyond several mission-based teams into scaling mission-based teaming, you're likely going to need some kind of governance mechanism to determine how to prioritize missions. Because once we have a lot of different players who are creating missions and handing them into the marketplace to be accomplished, there has to be a way to govern them and to prioritize them. And I did this work in a company, and I didn't start with that mechanism. And then once the mission-based teams were humming, it was like, okay, there's only so many people with this particular skill set to work across two missions. So the next one that needs that skill set needs to be deprioritized. And you need someone with these market design skills to be holding that, or at least to be determining what structures are necessary to hold that. Because we do a lot of that work in projects, but like, obviously that's not a long-term solution. 
Yeah. And if you remember from a couple episodes ago when we were talking, maybe it was the first episode actually, talking about where do MBTs come from? Where do missions come from? And we said yeah. early on, like, don't sweat it too much. Like, let's right. just get started, which I think we still are saying that, but you can't just fly by the seat of your pants forever. You can get started from the seat of your pants, but eventually yes. you got to bring a little bit more structure and discipline to what are we doing and how. Exactly. So with that being said, and knowing that the market designer is in some ways comparable to the role that you play as a transformer, what are some of the things that like when you're wrapping up a client project and you're like, here's all the stuff I'm doing that I would love to put into a safe pair of hands so that I can be (laughs) sure that it persists when I'm gone. Like, what is some of that stuff and where do you put it now? Yeah. Ideally, we're not having this conversation for the first time at the end of a project, hmm. ideally. Otherwise, I have ideally. really failed in my in my <laughs> role. So somebody or a group of somebody's, a core team, whoever, have been kind of riding co-pilot with us from pretty much the beginning. And that's the, the group who I'm handing stuff to. And the types of things that need to live on when we disappear from an organization. So things that come to mind for me right now are Inevitably, we did some sort of training, skill leveling up experiences for people, whether they were workshops or some sort of course or something. And we weren't able to cover everything they needed to know in the amount of time that we have. So some group of people needs to be carrying that forward. Like, What are the skills that people are going to need to be able to function within these mission-based teams? That needs to live somewhere and needs to continue evolving and continue being improved and adjusted based on whatever the organization needs. I mean, there's almost always a comms aspect of what Mm -hmm. the work is that we are doing and how do we continue to tell the story of what we are doing with this change in how we are working to the rest of the organization. It's really, really easy in the work that we do to get so wrapped up in our day-to-day and it can feel like everybody knows what we're doing differently over here and we don't need to talk about it when in reality... In a huge organization, you may just be the tiniest drop in a bucket. 95% of that organization doesn't necessarily know what is happening there. And if you're able to tell that story in a compelling way, it can really make your life easier and then also just prime the environment for the spread of whatever it is that we've, we've been doing. And then usually there's like a coaching or an ongoing relationship with key leaders that I've been holding in a role that hopefully I feel like I can hand to somebody that I really trust to continue doing some of that one-on-one or small group work with leaders who are really being challenged to show up differently in the ways of working that we've been trying to bring to an organization. And that, you know, even if you they have the best of intentions, we're talking about learning new skills, learning new behaviors. And there's usually some ongoing support that is needed to help those folks actually do that. Yeah. I don't know if I, if I hit the things that you were thinking of, yeah. if there are other things as well. I think that those are the things. And I think some of that leadership coaching and support inevitably will fall to the HR business coaches and stay there. But like Mm -hmm. how I sort of think of the distinction in between HR business coaches and market designers is like, if you think about HR business coaches as being really arms linked with the business and then deploying inside of mission-based teams to steward them from birth to death, Those folks are inside the business, inside the team, inside the work, and the market designers are like creating the wrapper around it. 
And that, I think that's one of the things that is really valuable about what we do with clients that is often missed is like, because we work with a lot of leadership teams who will say, you know, we're dissatisfied with our way of hiring. And rather than it just being like, now this is just the talent acquisition heads problem. It's like, okay, well now this becomes like a mission. And as a market designer, I am going to help to figure out where it goes, how it gets staffed, et cetera, et cetera, and how to stack it against everything else. So, so would the I, market I, designer be bringing in or like kind of having a take on what roles need to be part of that type of mission? And yeah, like I think going in collab with the HRBC. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also like, what is the tooling that's needed for a talent marketplace? I mean, in the further maturation, what is the budgeting? You know, the reality of this transformation for HR initially is that our recommendation is that you don't try to mess with the monies, is that you leave the existing budget and compensation structures as they are, because trying to fix that first will just result in heartache and blockages. But over time, when you see companies that work more as a marketplace, whether that is a movie studio or a consulting firm or lots of other examples out in the world, a valve, a hire, et cetera, the infrastructure follows. And ideally, your market designer is the one who's going, you know, the way that we do budgeting doesn't actually reflect the way work gets done here. We're going to need to address that at some point. Now, they're not going to have the authority to fix it on their own, but ideally they're the ones who are looking at what it takes to have a healthy talent marketplace and creating the OS of a marketplace. Gotcha. So I think you've been primarily using market designer in its singular form. We're generally not a huge fan of investing one individual human with Single um, point incredible of failure. amounts of power. And then, yeah, exactly. <laughs> So what is the uh, kind of division of labor potentially then across market designers? Focus I don't on topic know. or like I think it depends to some extent on how the marketplace is organized. So for example, if you are looking at something that's like an agency, there might be you know, the roles that in traditional firms do market designer type things might be organized by industry because that's how the clients are organized. Whereas in a tech company that I know, they're organized by geography because that's how the product gets deployed. I think that the way that the market designers are organized will likely follow the way that the work is organized. But... There absolutely needs to be more than one. And I think the number of them and what they carry will largely be determined on what's needed in the market. And like you see this a lot even in our own little company where it's like, how much do you need in the center? Well, you need financial stuff. You need hiring Mm -hmm. stuff. There are things that you need in the middle. And the market designers are not going to do all of those things, but they are going to help to understand what the missions that are more at the edge are missing, what would enable them, and then how to get those resources and enablers created. Yeah, and inevitably, that chapter of market designers has probably some interesting conversations to have or things to figure out among themselves to make sure they're not creating artificial silos between them. You know, we're organized geographically, but there are some things that we could do cross geographies, like let's not just default into whatever that organization is. 
Exactly. Yes, exactly. So, you know, a lot of this is going to be about sensing and responding, not necessarily doing all of the work themselves. So take a really easy example. Let's say that there's a group of market designers. They are here to support a very large talent marketplace. And what they are consistently hearing is that within the missions that are unfolding in the marketplace, the current individual incentives are misaligned with how missions work. So the people who are working on the mission-based team, they are coming from functional areas initially to be deployed. Maybe their incentives don't feel coupled with the mission. They feel coupled to something else. As a market designer, I'm not going to be able to redesign the incentive structure probably. But what hopefully I am able to do is turn to the platform team, which is holding compensation, and be like, yo, there is something missing that would support this marketplace that looks like a different kind of incentive structure. Go do it. Yeah. Could the platform team be like, yes, we agree, but we don't know what. Can we get a mission spun up around this? 100%. There is a diagram that I once drew on a napkin that shows that very loop. (laughs) Absolutely. And that's how it should work, right? Because then the compensation team can run that mission with a role from ops, a role from HR technology, a role from legal, a role from end users, et cetera, et cetera, so that they can create a new incentive structure for example, that they know is going to work. Cool. So where is the head of HR in all of this? What's the dynamic like between market designers and like CHRO, whoever's kind of sitting on top of this? Yeah, I mean- Is that role gone or is it it still there? Well, I mean, look, in the companies that I've looked at that work more this way, there usually is still an HR executive because they're on the leadership team. But Mm -hmm. at least for HR, a lot more of their role becomes about creating these enabling conditions than just being a manager that, like, is allocating budget down an org chart. That makes sense. Yeah. And hopefully what I would love to see is, like, that the chief people officer in level four is, as part of the executive team, really significantly focused on what the missions should be that are going to deliver the most value to the business. Yeah. Their role is to really have a a finger on the pulse of what would be the highest impact for the business. Being a part of those executive conversations, like that's the venue where those combos are happening and you need to be there to represent, but also to take that back to HR, to the people function. Exactly. And that they're the ones that are going like, okay, what is the OS that's needed to bring this strategy to life? And how does the HR function need to change in order to do that? I talked to someone this week, actually, about future of HR stuff, who's like very, very senior HR leader. And I would tell you is very much playing this role. Where like, Mm -hmm. the way that he conceives of his job is really as a strategy job. And the way that he thinks of this, which is what I think HR leadership looks like at level four, is like, what is happening in the market? How does that relate to our organization? What does that mean in terms of HR's priorities? That's it. That's like the whole game. (laughs) And he's just moving the ball on transformational shit within the people org. Well, and that's how, I mean, not to really sidetrack, because that's how every, I would argue, like the most senior executive for each function, that's what they should be doing. And the most dysfunction that we generally see in senior leadership teams is when 
they're way too into the weeds. They're way mm. too into the details of what their functions are doing. And they have lost sight of the actual strategic conversations and decisions that only that team can be talking about and making decisions about because it affects everyone. And that's, that's what's always been most frustrating for me. I've been in so many senior exec meetings where I'm like, what you all just spent half an hour talking about the most inane bullshit I've ever heard. And what are we doing here? Yeah, exactly. And like, we've talked about this on this show in the past that because it's rare to be in an executive team that is really varsity in systems thinking and really varsity in org design, those conversations tend to get really mired in the content of like, well, this was our strategy and why isn't it working? Let's yell about why it's not working rather than being like, what is it about our organization that is not fulfilling this strategy right now? Because it is something in the operating system. I'm saying even one step further, what is it about our organization and how it interacts with its environment uh, that is preventing us from from getting there? 100%. 100%. Hire the ready, Anyway. We help you with this. (laughs) So I want to talk a little bit about talent marketplaces generally. The market designer role, effectively, it's what we do when we're in organizations. It's what we want change agents to be doing. We want them to be creating an environment for more dynamic work and to support both mission-based teaming and evolutionary platforms and not stuck in reorgs and workshops. But let's talk about talent marketplaces in general because all the research that is circulating about trends and the future of work, et cetera, very clearly points at talent marketplaces as being the way of the future. And for the most part, what I see in big companies is when they talk about talent marketplaces, they're like, you can raise your hand to do this extracurricular thing without changing your job, your reporting line, your compensation or anything else. Go do this project with 10% time because it's interesting to you. Voila, talent marketplace. That is not what we mean. Or the slight variation on that is you have a reputation of getting things done, so we are going to ask you to take on things outside of your normal day-to-day, and sure. you'll have this portfolio of roles that you have been voluntold to do because you're good at getting things done until we oh, bring sure. you out and you leave, and we're sad. Until you're tie tie <laughs> and then you have to go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's not what a healthy talent marketplace is. Sam, what does a healthy talent marketplace look like inside of a company, any company, pick a company. So a a healthy talent marketplace. I don't know if I've ever answered this question. And, you know, I think... Gotcha. A little bit, a little bit got me. Because where my mind is going, and when I I think about talent marketplace, I really focus on that marketplace side. So, Mm -hmm. you know, economics, supply and demand, where you have lots of available things to do. I would call that the supply of the marketplace. And plenty of people who have the skills and the capability and the time and everything else to actually go and do that work. And to the extent that you can create the visibility on the opportunities and be really clear about what those are, and then get really clear on the other side, the talent side of that, what people are good at, what we need them to be able to do, and have mechanisms by which those can be connected without necessarily a controller 
telling people where they have to go, where there is this actual opt-in process. And I think you can look in lots of different ways. But like a healthy talent marketplace looks like any other marketplace where like it is changing over time based on like what is happening on the supply and demand side. I don't know. I went into my economics background on that answer. What are the things that I'm missing on that? Okay. I think it's exactly right. When I first started thinking about level four, one of the visuals that I always kept in my mind was a farmer's market. Like you have farmers, you have buyers, and then you have the market. And those are the three elements. You don't have a bunch of farmers who just show up on a random corner and like hope for the best. There is an infrastructure there that helps to connect supply and demand and that helps to continually cultivate the right environment for supply and demand to function. We meet but, at the same on the same cadence in the same location. We have, you know, ways to reserve or, or you know buy tables or our own space. We don't all show up with only carrots, things like that. We don't have fifteen peach farmers and nothing else. <laughs> That's a peach market. That's a peach festival. Unless, That's not unless you've marketed market. unless you've marketed that and there's lots of different types of peaches and everybody's there looking for different types of peaches. Peaches only, folks. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that, you know, I know there are probably a lot of people listening right now who are like, yeah, that sounds great, but like we're so far away from that. But statistically, like this is where the world is headed. I mean, we have seen research that says that 50% of the workforce will be freelance over the next few years. That is a humongous number. People are doing gig work. Like the gig economy isn't the gig economy. It's the economy. That is how work is working for a large percentage of the population. It is not one person, one organization, one job anymore. There is a modularity to this that we need to start designing for, even though it's going to be messy and imperfect. And the truth is that people don't want to be stuck in one organization. You know, they want the autonomy to work on things more piecemeal, based on skill, based on interest, based on what they're trying to develop, and not just be like, I work for this one butthead, and I show up this same office, and I make the donuts every single day. That's just not like how knowledge workers want to roll anymore. And so we have to start designing systems that answer that. Yeah. So you're talking marketplaces. So I think there's one version that you're talking about, which is the marketplace includes freelancers who are external to the organization, non-employees. And there are some many, many organizations out there that are so large in and of themselves, even just a really well-functioning talent marketplace within only the confines of, you know, being an employee can be a very robust almost as if you were working with freelancers sort of marketplace as well. You have 150,000 people in your organization with a pretty good talent marketplace. That's a lot of opportunity for flexibility and showing up and doing different things. Yeah, it could be pretty dope. One thing that I wanted to ask you about specifically, since we're now delving into this part, what did you learn about this on your sojourn into Dowland? Because, like, <laughs> DAOs are a marketplace without any membrane around them, mostly, or, like, the most porousest membranes yeah. that exist in the world. So we're talking about right now, it's, like, traditional, hierarchical, top-down, triangle-shaped organizations trying to create something that feels more circular and more dynamic and more atomized. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have, like, fucking chaos 
but it is an unregulated market in many cases. So I'm curious, like on that end of the spectrum, what did you like see and learn about talent marketplaces? Well, it may surprise you to know that the other end of a continuum is not utopia. Uh, No. (laughs) That That was, we heard it was going to (laughs) be. Being basically kind of complete laissez-faire talent marketplaces does create interesting opportunities, you know, especially if you think about playing it out into the future with the idea of having reputation that lives on chain that comes with you from job to job, not like a resume, but actual verifiable contributions that you've made. Like that's an interesting thing to think about how that would evolve in the future and what that means for being able to show up in any organization and play a specific role and and people inviting you in, being able to trust that you can actually do what you say you do because you point to actual things. But there's also, as you can imagine, when you're dealing with pure anonymity and almost no membrane around showing up and doing something in an organization, there's often almost no accountability for either not doing it or doing Mm. it really poorly. Uh, Mm. So I think that was something that lots of DAOs struggled with is that, you know, you have someone showing up saying that they'll take on this kind of very clear bounty to do a piece of work, and then they disappear or they do something that's 20% of what you actually wanted there. So it's, yeah, I mean, I think what that points at for me is that that idea of having structure, the farmer's market, having the infrastructure, the scaffolding to know that the, the farmer is going to show up, is going to show up with, I don't know, not poison, is a, an actual valuable part of the, the marketplace. So there is some regulation that just brings more trust and makes it easier to navigate the marketplace without it being like totally centralized as well. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think the thing that was so interesting to me about DAOs is what you said about like effectively like on-chain reputation and like kind of transparent badging. And if we think about the talent marketplace as being the third way between something that's very fixed and bureaucratic and like one soul, one job and something like a DAO that is usually, which like there are pros and cons to that on the other end of the spectrum, pros and cons to DAOs, which are like too chaotic and have a lot of the issues that you mentioned. I do think this is the third way that feels quite modern. And one of the things that I think is the trickiest when you are creating a robust talent marketplace is the on-chain thing that DAOs had going for them. Because in a company, say, you know, use the example of like a 150,000 person company could be a very robust marketplace. Like you could be deploying skills against missions in very interesting ways just because of the scale of that. And I think the tooling is really one of the hardest things. It gets overly complicated and deeply unuseful very quickly. Yeah, it does. And if you don't get it right, I mean, I think there's always the opportunity too when you are dealing with a giant marketplace, you can kind of get lost in it. Uh, yeah. In a, especially if you're trying to and right. like just bounce from thing to thing and like kind of do them all poorly, but you don't really give a shit. Like there are real tooling kind of challenges to maintaining a healthy and vibrant marketplace. Like you want to know if I'm going to the marketplace trying to find someone to fill a project, like I need a member of my team, I want to know that who says they're good at this stuff that I need help with is actually able to do those things and vice versa. That I if I'm looking for a project that I know that it actually is the thing that it says it is and I'm going to get to be able to do the things that it says I'm going to be able to do and build myself in in the way that I want to build my career. So, it's interesting challenges 
but I think they're better challenges than the old way. Like let's, 100%. let's optimize for more interesting problems to solve. Yeah, let's have higher class problems than the problems exactly. we have right now. Problems and one are of the fine. Re- let's just make sure <laughs> they're the right are ones. Problems. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Let's have interesting, healthy ones that make us better. And and one of the things that I just want to say, because like, you know, Aaron and I did a couple of episodes just on talent marketplaces. Oh, We've yeah. talked a lot in this episode more generically about talent marketplaces. But the reason that I really want to like seat this in HR is because A, we do already usually have these change agents in HR that can start to hold the role of designing the farmer's market and figuring out how it is going to function and continually refine it. B, so much of what is required for a vibrant marketplace is held within the domain of HR. So the fact that tooling that helps us understand reporting lines, skills, performance, employment history, et cetera, sits in HR. Recruiting where we bring the humans in sits in HR. Like compensation. How we pay people to show up on teams. Exactly. Sits in HR. How we hold people accountable or whatever kind of feedback or performance structure sits in HR. So it's like if HR doesn't sort of start to make the moves toward a marketplace, it's really tricky because in places where I've done this work and HR hasn't come to the party, you bump into that stuff. And it's like we just have to ignore the wall. Exactly. No, totally. We just have to ignore the wall that we keep running into and being like, just don't, we'll fit, we'll figure out performance management at the end of the year when our work yeah. has nothing to do with how we set goals. We'll cross that bridge when we get to it. But I would prefer that our HR folks are actually like tip of the spear on this rather than, you know, the last consideration slash end around. You would prefer that this wall is more of a door. Wow. Yes. And that is why you're a podcast host now. Um, We are going to talk about level five in the future, which is going to bring AI conversation into the mix. A lot of what I believe is going to be the guts of what's needed to run a marketplace will be AI tooling. It's obviously very early days, but we just know from, you know, 40 years of history that HR systems are not doing the job that they need to do to be dynamic in the way that work is dynamic. And I just, I don't think that there is a better mousetrap to build. So stay tuned for more of that. This is it for today. Sam, what are we going to do next week? Well, so far we've covered MBTs, two yeah. new HR roles, yeah. and transforming your department into a full-on talent marketplace. Hey so now. if an HR team <laughs> accomplished all of that and wanted <laughs> to know what's next, that means it's time to talk about how those large-scale automation and product mindset skills you've been building will unlock, as Rodney said, levels five and six of our maturity model. If you want a preview, check out the goods on theready.com forward slash F-O-H-R and hook us up with your CHRO or HRBP or head of people or whatever title we're using right now. Love it. Thank you, as always, to Taylor Marvin for making us sound super awesome. This miniseries is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. You can get in touch with us by emailing fohr at theready.com. As for you HR leaders listening right now, let's change ourselves first, maybe into a marketplace. <laughs>